0: Hi, I'm Lee Blancett. Welcome back to the second part of our first podcast of the year. We're talking with Dr. Mike Kalogi about Consolidation 2.0 and 2.1. In the second part of our podcast, we'll examine some of the network management considerations these organizations will employ and which books of business they're likely to pursue as they move forward to try and control cost and profit through the transformations in this consolidation wave. How do you see some of the other players coming to this? So we've seen Oncology Institute, for instance, very clearly and aggressively go after risk for cancer patients, either through capitation or through other at-risk approaches. Do you see some of the other big name brands trying to do that also? The Florida Cancers or the Aeons or One Oncologies. Is this going to be part of what they offer to their marketplace of payers? I think part of the challenge
1: with those clinical organizations assuming you know a prominent risk position is that they have provider density in certain markets but they don't have national provider density so i, I remember very very well when i was at aetna and was building my was medical home and we were talking with some very important self-insured plan sponsors and you know, telling them how great our medical home practices were. And they would say to me, look, we have employees in Charlotte, Dallas, and Seattle. If you can't provide me a solution in all the places I have employees, you can't provide me a solution. And so Florida Cancer, let's just take Florida Cancer. If you have a dominant industry that's centered there, then you can win. Let's take an example. I'm in upstate New York. And if you can provide in New York a solution for state employees and education and retirees of those, then you got a fighting chance. Tennessee, one oncology in Tennessee, perfect storm. If you can find a big self insured employer in Tennessee, you have a dominant payer. In Tennessee, Tennessee Blue Cross Blue Shield, right? So there's been some talk, and and I don't know the details about Tennessee Blue Cross Blue Shield negotiating with, uh, I'll say one oncology, but I really mean is the one oncology practices in Tennessee. And that kind of thing can work. But again, I don't know what, there's like 900 health insurance companies in America or something like that. And they're all a mile wide and an inch thick except for the local nonprofit plans, which are all small, and the local blues plans. And honestly, the local blues plans don't have a heck of a lot of expertise. So I think it's hard, really hard, for Topa or Florida Cancer or Tennessee Onc or any of those to really provide a solution, which makes the City of Hope thing all the more interesting. Right? Because they are geographically diversified.
0: And now they are nationwide.
1: Yes. And I think that's fascinating. And I would be shocked if they stop now. If they've gone down this path, then I think there's reasons to start thinking of them kind of with a hub and spoke type model and having key centers. And and again. Then you start thinking about how do they extend their reach beyond where their spokes currently terminate, right? So do they form network affiliations with physicians that are close enough? We'll see what happens. I mean, they're fairly innovative, you know? When they do something, I always have to think twice about why are they doing that? Where are they going with this?
0: But I think that's a really interesting solution. So playing this out, is there would you see perhaps, and I understand this is pure conjecture, that a Cancer Treatment Center of America Hospital, for instance, might form the anchor for a local cancer IDN? Absolutely. And you know, to some extent, what we heard at the
1: meeting was that's what they've done in their, their little area in Southern California.
0: So going in and focus on one specialty, i.e. oncology. Yep and try and dominate. Okay, we've seen U.S. oncology try that also.
1: Yeah, but U.S. oncology was, and again, I speak with a lot of experience, they've they've been challenged by a couple of things. Number one is they never really made a dent in most major metropolitan areas. They haven't really been interested in going to war with big hospital systems for the most part. Their business model is challenged in states that have certificate of need because their success depends on diversification of cancer services including imaging and radiation. So CON states have always been challenging for them. So yes, that's true. But I'm going to guess in the last 10 years, maybe even longer, their net number of new physicians is probably close to zero. You know, they add a practice here or there and then they lose a practice here or there.
0: Okay. So I'm curious, one thing that's occurred to me as I've been listening to you just now, I've been thinking about Consolidation 2.0 is being two different players, sort of the bottom up with the Village MDs and the Carbon Healths, and then top down through the Optums and the Aetna type organizations. It seems to me as though what you're saying though is that the reality is for the, what I was seeing is the bottom up, the primary care focused outfits, that want to go at risk. It's really, they're going to be part of the verticals like Walgreens or CVS or whatever. So really what you're seeing here is simply perhaps a new tool or you know, an acquisition for the big vertical players the conglomerates as it were to leverage I mean do you see their success being contingent upon being part of one of these conglomerates or will, do they have a chance to be independent
1: yeah that, that's a great question and I'm not going to presume to understand exactly what the strategic plan is for those village organizations and what have you you know there's a certain amount of success they can achieve if they restrict their focus to Medicare advantage right to being a designated Medicare entity and assuming risk but honestly to me that's a pretty competitive space not that it can't be lucrative but it's a competitive space and i think for them to really succeed and this is just me talking totally speculation, they got to get that commercial opportunity to the extent that they can succeed in the commercial population. Because there's a tremendous opportunity for arbitrage between what those self-insured plan sponsors are paying today for care and, for example, what Medicare pays today for care. And, you know, there's a huge population of folks out there Boy, you know, there's <laughs> so many opportunities here for just dramatic change. I almost always jokingly refer to single payer because I think it, as currently conceived of by some of the folks in Washington as as something along the m- Medicare for everybody, that is going to be a non-start. But, you know, I really think when the ACA was first put together, there was an intention for there really to be significant consolidation in the provider space and the payer space. And that consolidation would lead to significant competition. I think consolidation is such a bad word these days, Lee. It's funny, you know, but not all consolidation is necessarily bad. I do think that any of the things that we've just been discussing are going to lead to some form of consolidation within the provider space. Very, very hard. To see how you could be included into any of this stuff, unless you're part of a bigger entity. And I've said this for years. I just don't, I don't understand how small practices survive.
0: So we've talked about consolidation. We've talked about how Optum has a direct line. And Village MD and Carbon have dotted lines for the time being. But those dotted lines could morph into direct through their affiliations. One thing I do want to follow up on. Remember, when we we're talking about Medicare and these new outfits, it's not only Medicare Advantage they may be going after, they're also looking at the direct contracting opportunities there where you're converting basically a, a Medicare fee-for-service patient into a narrow network gatekeeper HMO. Maybe not the way the benefits constructed, constructed, but the way that you try to manage the, the patient. My wife is fee-for-service Medicare. She just got a letter from Sutter saying, we're now a direct contracting entity. And reading between the lines, what it said was, we're going to try and manage you as a gatekeeper HMO patient. Oh,
1: absolutely. That's why, you know, when we were on the panel, that's what I said. This feels a lot like HMOs to me. Yeah. So here's what scares me. Number one, I think we could have access problems, particularly in less populated areas of the country where there just isn't enough business for these big entities to be that interested and for the doctors to scrape by. So access, I think, could be a problem. Number two is, and and this has always been my challenge with alternative payment models, we seem to have forgotten that you need to measure quality. You absolutely have to have guardrails in for quality. Because if the only discussion is about cost, it's surely the road to perdition. It's bad. The third thing is, I think there could be issues with health equity. Because these entities are all about the bottom line. And I would say, who's going to take care of Medicare? Who's going to take care of Medicare? And so I'm I'm really worried about what the implications are for health equity. So those are, to me, three really big problems. So, you know, the truth of the matter is, and this is, people have said this forever, Medicare Advantage is wonderful insurance if you're fundamentally a healthy person. Just a true statement. Wonderful insurance. If you're a healthy person who stays home, doesn't travel, then Medicare Advantage is great. Gets complicated if you have a complex medical condition where access might be restricted, or if if you have even more, a complex medical condition where you're not necessarily always in the same place, where your network of physicians and your pharmacy benefit is, is pretty clear it gets to be super complicated for patients and patients can get caught in the middle. Now, that's not a, good thing. not a good thing. Our healthcare system is too complicated as it is. And I fear this could make it even more complicated.
0: Do you have any concerns about the economic incentives here? I mean, in terms of, you know, how doctors are going to select treatments for patients, you know, I mean, particularly in cancer? Oh, sure.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Oh. Oh, yeah, sure. So I truly have equipoise on this subject. I think doctors make a lot of decisions that are not evidence based. I'm not suggesting that they're financially motivated, but i I would say they're not evidence based, but I think the idea that one size fits all in terms of managing a, a patient with any given is is really a risky proposition. It also to some extent may restrict our ability to learn and improve care outside of the conventional research enterprise. Now, I've said a lot of times in my career that it's just a pity that we don't learn more from the patients that we're just treating now, just treating. And, you know, the idea of my old friend, Amy Abernathy and Flatiron and I used to Bemoan the fact that we don't really have a rapid learning system in healthcare. And we should. We really should. We've treated so many patients and we may not be able to figure out what the right thing to do is, but I'm telling you what, we know (laughs) out there that information exists that tells us what the wrong thing to do is. So that kind of, and again, the term personalized care is way overused. But the idea to appropriately manage nuance. And learn from appropriately managing nuance. It'll go away. Because n- none of us who practiced recently really remember the really harsh HMOs of the early 90s.
0: Right?
1: They were tough. They're tough. And that might hurt patients, I'm afraid.
0: So you would see a point where perhaps you're going to see Village MD or Carbon Health, just to name names. Um, restricting use of some of the more modern, more expensive therapies? Well, I'm
1: not sure they would, but their parent organization would desire it, yes. I mean, you know, the classic example of of our recent lifetime has been the use of white cell growth factors, for example, which for many regimens, uh, up until biosimilars, they they were the most expensive component of the regimen. And I spent hours thinking about how to appropriately promote evidence-based prescribing, of those agents. And let me tell you something, it ain't easy. That's a really hard nut to crack. So could they do that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm afraid. I think they could. I think they could.
0: Okay. And they would do this either directly through, you know, coverage using a formulary or just by putting the doctrine or some kind of a very strong incentive? Yeah, precisely. Do you feel any different about, say, the completely independence right now, like the Carbon Healths versus the Village MDs, where they're tied up with a, a healthcare conglomerate? Do you think the outcomes might be different there?
1: Oh, yes, I do definitely. Yeah, I, I think the Village MDs and those kind of organizations will, by necessity, allow physicians a lot more freedom in the short term. Uh, in the long term, I don't know what happens. But we jokingly talked on the panel about Amazon getting into this game. That is not such a wild idea if you ask me. there's an area where there's tremendous i think opportunity for greater structure in how care is delivered, standardization, streamlining, and associated cost savings and i I would think that healthcare care would be irresistible to an organization like uh, Amazon and, and so then the question becomes is Amazon more like village or do they start employing physicians? Do they start employing oncologists? And that, to me,
0: is a very scary idea. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking, given their model the way it is now. But yeah, you know they're employing nurses now, right? Nurse practitioners. Why do not treat it like psychology or pain? Where the doctor, yeah, one oncologist is overseeing a thousand patients and you have a bunch of nurse practitioners running around infusing them.
1: Yeah. Hey, listen, I have to tell you, so, uh, after the talk, Somebody jokingly sent me a link to a job posting for Amazon in healthcare.
0: If you were one of our client companies, what would a biopharmaceutical company need to worry about in this new change?
1: Well, I think obviously that if you are a company that has a single source product in a crowded class, you'd be very, very sensitive to consolidation of the provider market by one of these mechanisms because it will ultimately affect you. That is one thing I would recommend you. Keep your eye on
0: this. Well, thanks for joining us. The Proximity Health team believes that this nascent consolidation wave holds the potential to upend not just primary care, but also specialty care, including oncology. The key changes driving this ahead include increasing use of telehealth, especially remote monitoring and teleconsults, and the rising interest of the giant healthcare conglomerates such as CVS Aetna, Cigna Express, and United Optum. Consolidation 2.0 won't roll ahead smoothly or predictably, and we'll see substantial local variation where conglomerates with high membership density will be able to influence cancer treatment through a mix of network channeling, financial incentives, and guideline and pathway use. The biggest wild card will be these organizations' ability to leverage Consolidation 2.1 technologies to overcome lack of membership density in many local markets. We could, for example, see Cigna using virtual first benefit plans to channel patients into narrow ACOs, even in markets where an IDN dominates specialty care and where Cigna has low market share. Manufacturers need to respond to these changes now. The conglomerates are important customers, even if they are essentially middlemen in delivering healthcare. They currently are mostly not integrated across all their different functions, but they're working on it. Manufacturers need to develop an informed view of their interactions with the conglomerates parts at a global level and to track all the contracting data acquisition, and administrative support being delivered. You need a very senior-level quarterback for each of these billion-dollar customers. Going forward, we expect that oncology providers risk seeing many of their current referral channels being cut off, as the conglomerates and their primary care providers focus on narrow networks of highly incentivized specialists. This means manufacturers will need to monitor not only their own relationships with the conglomerates, but also be alert to developments along their core oncologist customers. Clients will be seeing more data and analysis later this summer as Proximity Health begins to publish our reports illuminating developments in the U.S. oncology market. I'm Lee Blancett and I invite you to contact us with questions around this work.